Good morning. Try this one more time. Pastor Christia tried this with you up front. I'm Pastor John. I want to try this as well. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Amen. It is so good to be with you this morning. It is my absolute favorite day of the year. There is just something about Easter. I wake up and I'm just excited every year. Been listening to worship music all morning and just delighted to share with you what I believe God wants to share this morning. If you were with us last week, we looked at the Palm Sunday story in Matthew's gospel and how Jesus fulfilled many prophecies within the Old Testament and how he fulfilled the hopes of God's people. Jesus is the Messiah who brings God's kingdom and invites us to join and celebrate in his goodness and glory. And today we celebrate the greatest event in all of human history. Jesus not only died for our sins, but he was raised in victory. Death is not the end. There's a promised resurrection to new life for those who hope in Christ. The spirit of Jesus is alive and active in his followers. If you have a Bible, it might be a paper Bible, it might be a, a digital Bible, it might be another tab if you're watching online, opening a different browser to just kind of join along. But if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to lift up your Bible nice and high, or maybe you want to borrow one in the chair in front of you and just say, I got my Bible, PJ. I hope that you can listen to God's word this morning through his scriptures, not just through my voice. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28 as kind of our focus this morning. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 28, go ahead and do that. Have you ever rejected something in your life, even though it had potential to be something very good, maybe a blessing in your life? Maybe you had a friend who invited you to spend some time just hanging out and just kind of enjoying life together, just being with one another. But while they were inviting you, you were thinking about your task list of things that you had to get done. And so even though it could have been a blessing in your life, you're like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Or, or maybe you had the chance to apply for a job. And it's a job that you knew you would really enjoy. You'd even been kind of wanting, but something about it, as you were thinking about it, you just kind of talked yourself out of it. Like, ah, they're probably not going to hire me anyways. Maybe you saw something go on sale for a price you could afford. Ladies, I don't know, maybe it was a dress or a purse or something that you'd had your eye on for a while and now it was on sale. Or guys, maybe you were driving past a car lot and you saw your dream car that you had wanted since you were a kid and you knew that you could afford it, but, well, we've got dimming lights on us again. We'll try to bring those back up for you in just a second. But um, you knew you could afford it, but there was just something in your brain. You were like, eh, I don't know. If I buy the dress, it's probably just going to get stained. If I, if I buy the car, it probably there's going to be some maintenance issues, and I don't know, and, and you just kind of pass on it. We do this in life sometimes, right? We reject things that we desire. And there's not necessarily a technical term, but I made one up. I would call this bowling pin syndrome. I think sometimes we have this fear in life that we are just being set up in order to get knocked down again. And so we are kind of afraid of, I don't know that I want to go for something good in my life. I don't know that I want to embrace a, a potential blessing because if I embrace that, I might just get knocked over again. Growing up as a, a young man, I was a little bit girl crazy. 
I always wanted to have a girlfriend. I desired that, but I was super duper afraid of rejection. And so my personal policy is that I would never ask a girl out unless I kind of had a really good idea that she liked me first. And so every girl, I had a few girls that I dated in high school, a couple girls I dated in college, and I never would be willing to ask her out unless I knew she liked me. Until one day at college, I was sitting at a lunch table and this ridiculously beautiful blonde walks in with one of our friends and she sits down at the lunch table. And I'm just absolutely smitten. I mean, let's be honest, I thought she was hot. And I wanted this girl to be my girlfriend. And so I thought to myself, I thought, well, she's new to the school. There's a lot of other guys here. And so maybe if I kind of strike first, I can kind of be in there, right? And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to break my policy. And for the very first time in my life, I said, I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to pursue this girl. And do you know what happened? She rejected me. <laughs> All of my worst fears came true, and my heart was broken, and she wanted nothing to do with me. But the truth is, God was working on some things in each of our lives behind the scenes. Our, each of our stories individually had some twists and turns that God was working on. And when his timing was right, God brought Christia and I back together according to his good plan, that we could experience the joy of a marriage and a relationship that was in Christ. I think sometimes we reject what could be something good in our lives because we're more focused on what we've seen than what God has promised to us. God promises us goodness and life and victory, and yet our experience doesn't always seem to line up with those terms. And so we tend to trust what we've seen rather than what he said. The resurrection story in Matthew's gospel, I believe, is a perfect example of this. If you have your Bible open again, we're in Matthew chapter 28. And he writes this. He says, After Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook. They became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met the women. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Skip down to verse 16. It says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
We've spent quite a bit of time, if you've been with us at Oak Ridge for a little while, we've spent a while looking at prophecy. You might rewind in your brain and remember we spent a while kind of going through a series on the minor prophets and looking at these tiny little books near the end of the Old Testament that for some of us we've just glossed over. They're kind of weird and obscure. And so we said, let's take some time and actually look at what these books have to say. If you were with us at Christmas time, we had a series called The Savior Foretold. And we kind of went back to some of those minor prophets and we looked at Matthew's gospel and the birth story of Jesus and how many of the prophecies of those uh, prophets were realized in Jesus's birth story in the gospel of Matthew. Last Sunday, we talked about the Palm Sunday story in Matthew's gospel. And again, many times Matthew includes details reaching back into the Old Testament to show how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. In our story today, we read a prophecy from Jesus himself that has now come to pass. Remember on Palm Sunday, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and the crowds say, who is this? They respond, he's the prophet from Nazareth. Jesus has prophesied something that has now come to pass. The women who come to the tomb, they find it different than they expect. It's empty. Jesus is gone, but an angel is there conversing with them. And the angel says this to the women. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Now, to find where that story happens, we're going to have to rewind a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you want to rewind, flip a few pages back to the left to Matthew chapter 16, the story happens here. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This should never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus had told his disciples about his resurrection before the event actually took place. But the disciples had trouble, difficulty, accepting what Jesus had spoken to them because their eyes were fixated on what was in front of them their circumstances, if you will, what they could see and what was right there rather than what God himself, what Jesus had spoken. They couldn't have hope in what Jesus had said because they were looking at what was right in front of them. 
And so I want to look with you for just a moment today at some of the things that I think the disciples were looking at that clouded their ability to understand this prophecy when it was first spoken, because I think, in reality, many of us sometimes see the exact same things, and it distracts us from having the hope that God wants to speak into your life this Easter morning. For one thing, the disciples, I think, were distracted by the power of hell. There are, we're told in the story in Matthew chapter 16 that they are in Caesarea Philippi. Now in Caesarea Philippi, there was a well-known cave, and at the mouth of this cave where a river flowed out, people would gather, the Greeks would gather, and they would worship the god Pan. And they had this belief that this cave, and particularly the water going back into the cave, was a passageway to the underworld. And so they would gather there, believing that the spirits would retreat in the fall back to the underworld, back to Hades, back to Sheol, or back to hell, whichever term you want to use. They would retreat back in, and at the spring, these gods would come back out from hell into the world around them. And so the people would gather at this cave in Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, you can actually still go and see this cave and visit it today. But outside of this cave, they would engage in prostitution, human sacrifice, sexual acts with animals. It was a grotesquely sinful place. Devout Jews would stay away from this area of Caesarea Philippi. And yet Jesus gathers there with his disciples. Literally, the place was known as the gates of hell. And it is in this place when Jesus begins to talk to his disciples and he begins to say, who are people saying that I am? And they come up with all kinds of religious sounding answers, right? You're one of the prophets, you're, you're John the Baptist, you're, you're Jeremiah. Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer. He says, you, you're Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're the one that has been foretold that you will bring the kingdom of God into our lives. And Jesus says, Peter, that's right. You didn't get that just by your own thoughts. My Father in heaven has revealed that truth to you. And on that kind of profession of faith, the idea of somebody understanding that who I am is the Messiah, that I bring the kingdom of God into your life, and that's the kind of faith on which my church on which my kingdom is built. And the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Everything that you see, all of the sin and all of the ugliness and all of the darkness that exists here in Caesarea Philippi, even worshiping these gods and even the kinds of acts that are happening to worship the gods of Hades and the underworld, hell cannot prevail against my kingdom. I think sometimes, as followers of Jesus or even as people curious about the whole Jesus thing, sometimes it's hard to hear what Jesus says about a coming kingdom because our eyes see the power of hell. We look at our world and we see the darkness that is all around us. We see the, the sin that is rampant in our culture. We see children still sacrificed. We see sexual acts of darkness. We see people turning to spiritual powers other than the Lord. And sometimes the presence of evil is so evident and the voices seem so loud that it is hard to hear Jesus say, 
that in spite of such evil, he will rise and his kingdom will come. The disciples could see the power of hell. They, they also saw impropriety in religion. When Jesus gathers his disciples and he begins to explain what is going to come, he says that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and he will be handed over by the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. The people who are running the religious uh, society here in Jerusalem, they're the ones that are going to hand the Son of Man over. The people who should have been studying Scripture and they should have been looking intently at what do the prophets say, the people who knew it, who had it memorized, the people who were leading other people supposedly closer to God are the ones who put Messiah on a cross. And I think for the disciples there had to be some confusion Everything that we've been hoping for, everything that we've been told, everybody who's been the ones telling us, they're the ones who take the Messiah and hand him over. It doesn't make sense. Can we be really honest on Easter Sunday to say that not everything that is done in the name of Christianity serves to bring the kingdom of God closer to the lives of the people he desires to reach. There's a lot of things that sometimes happen within the big C church, within churches. Maybe in your life you have some history of something that has happened within the church, and for you, you look at that and you go, it is hard for me to listen to Jesus say that he will rise, that he will be victorious, that his kingdom will come, because I've seen stuff. I've heard stuff about the church, and it just doesn't seem to line up. Now, you have to note, Jesus tells us to love the church. He loved the church. It was his bride. He gave his life for her. Shouldn't hate the church, but realize that she is imperfect, and she has fallen, and Jesus still says, I have a promise. I will rise. My kingdom will come. I think for the disciples, they saw government corruption. Jesus was handed over by those religious leaders to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, in order that he might be executed. And his followers had to be terrified. If Rome had killed Jesus, they were his disciples. Their lives could be the next ones to be given on a cross. They had hoped so much as they understood what the Old Testament prophecies were, their hope in Jesus is that some point in time, this guy was going to start getting an army together and he was going to build the kingdom, an earthly political kingdom on earth. And that much like David's kingdom was an earthly political human-led kingdom, they hoped that Jesus was going to do that. And wow, was it so confusing to see that Messiah that, that Peter would talk about in, in Matthew 16 hanging on a cross. Peter can't wrap his head around it. He says, God, that could never happen to you, Jesus. I would never allow you to be hung on a cross. That can't be how it works. Peter was looking to politics to be his savior. How often are we blinded by the systems of human beings, governments or businesses or you name it. 
we look to things that we think, man, I really want to see God do this. How often as Christians do we pray more for our government than our kingdom? How much hope do we put in election season that God's going to put the right man or woman into the White House or into Tallahassee or into the mayoral office? Jesus said, my kingdom is greater. When he's talking to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You live in this world much like Jesus was when he lived here. So you live physically in this world, just like I'm now living in this world. But I'm not of this world. My kingdom is layered over top of it. My incarnation is a picture of what your life will be like. You live bodily in one world, but you live spiritually as a part of another kingdom. And Jesus was trying to get his disciples to see, my kingdom is coming. I will rise. The government is not where your hope is to be found. Maybe more than anything else, the disciples found it hard to trust what Jesus said because what they saw in front of them was, was fear. The power of hell is scary. Sin masquerading as religion is scary. The evils of the Roman government were scary. Fear often grips our lives when it takes over. We fear what we cannot control. We fear that it will harm us and that it will bring some form of loss into our lives. We fear the loss of our life, the loss of our health. The disciples had to be afraid watching Jesus on that cross that they would be next. And we similarly fear, what is going to happen with my life? We fear loss of resources and provision. We fear loss of direction. These disciples had spent three years, had given everything to follow this guy that they thought was Messiah. Now they've watched him hang on a cross and be buried in a tomb. They had no idea, what do I do with my life now? I've given everything thinking this guy was the Messiah. And Rome killed him. The chief priests are the ones who handed him over. What do I do now? John's gospel tells us even after Jesus rose, Peter didn't quite get it at first. We fear loss of direction. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? We can fear loss of relationships. We put ourselves in this place of these disciples before the resurrection event, and their best friend, and their rabbi, and the person they had followed for three years has been killed and buried. And yet over all of these situations, what Jesus wants for his first disciples I believe is the same thing that he wants for us. He wants us to know the truth of Peter's confession in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, that he has come to bring about the kingdom of God in our lives, that his kingdom is built on our faith when we realize that though we physically still exist in this world, there is another kingdom which is now here that we can be a part of. Too often it is tempting to trust in the situations that we can see, to have fear because of what is right in front of us rather than to put our faith in Jesus. Jesus makes one more prophetic proclamation at the end of Matthew's gospel. 
the resurrected Jesus declares in a climactic statement at the very end of Matthew, his last sentence, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, they echo what Scripture has been saying since the very beginning. In Genesis 1.27, when God makes mankind in his image so that we can be known by him and know him. In Genesis 2.8, when God plants a garden in Eden. In Deuteronomy 31, when he says, be strong and courageous, the Lord himself goes before you and he is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. In Joshua 1.9, when he says, be strong and courageous, the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In Isaiah 41.10, when he says, do not fear, I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus reminds his disciples and each one of us who he is. We talked about his name last week. He is Jesus. He is Yeshua, Yahweh saves. And he tells his disciples, surely I am. Surely Yahweh is here. Surely Yahweh saves. Surely I am. See, when the power of hell comes into your life, surely I am stronger. And anything you see that does not look of God, anytime the powers of the enemy wage war against your life, anytime sin seems to have its grip on who you are, know that I am stronger. Know that Messiah is bigger. Know that the identity that you wore as somebody separated from God by sin does not have to be the identity that defines your life because I have died to pay the debt that you owed. Thy kingdom has come into your life. You can be new. You can be transformed, not because of your deeds or your actions or what you do or don't do, but by the fact that I have come to you. I have brought my kingdom. You do not just live in the kingdom of this world, but my kingdom is here. Your spirit can experience my spirit. I am stronger than the power of hell. When religion seems off track, surely I am holy. It is easy for you to look at what is wrong and what is broken with the church, how somebody else messed up, how they made a mistake, how they did something they shouldn't do. But Jesus says, surely I am holy. Surely I am the representation of God and his kingdom. Surely I am the one you should look to. The church can point the way. They're a reflection. They will help. But the church can never have the holiness in all of its power that I have. Surely your eyes should be on me. I am holy. When the government seems corrupt, surely I am just. I created the world in the very beginning, at the foundations of creation. I created you to experience life and life abundantly in relationship and connection with me. And sin ripped you away. But I have paid the penalty for sin. You can come back into the relationship with God that you were created to experience. The injustice that happens in the government, the injustice that happens in in the marketplace, the injustice that happens in your workplace, the injustice that happens in your family, the injustice that happens between races and between religions and between people groups and between socioeconomic groups. I 
will right every wrong in my kingdom. I am justice. Look to me. And when life is filled with every kind of fear, surely I am with you. Surely I am here. Surely I am Emmanuel. What if this Easter we stop trusting just in the circumstances we see in front of us? The things that fill us with worry and doubt. I believe that this Easter, Jesus tenderly calls us to join with him, just like he did to his first disciples. Come join me on the mountain in Galilee. And he reminds us of what he's already spoken. Things sometimes seem dark. Sometimes it looks like hell is advancing. Sometimes even religious leaders seem to falter. And the governments and systems of human beings act in ways that are destructive, oppressive, or harmful. But I will rise. I have victory over it all. I have promised that I am with you always to the end of this age. I will never leave you or abandon you or forsake you. I will carry you in this life. As my disciples know that I have brought the kingdom of God. And just as I walked in one world while living in a different world, you are invited to experience my kingdom now. Your soul can be set free. You no longer have to have the identity that sin gave you, fallen, separated, in Adam, a sinner, broken and lost. I've paid the debt that you owed. If you will have faith, just like Peter, to say you are the Messiah, You're the son of the living God. Jesus, you came into this world that I could be set free from all of that sin and debt and brokenness. And you offer me the kingdom of God through a spiritual connection with God my Father. And that kingdom is here. I can experience it now. I can have the relationship with God the Father that Jesus had when he walked on this earth now because you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. I am no longer bound to sin, but I am set free in Christ. And if Christ has set you free, then you are free indeed. He says, my kingdom is still coming in all of its fullness. Eden will be restored in the end. But as you live in these two kingdoms at the same time, I want you to be on mission with me. I want you to go everywhere you can. Talk to anybody who will listen. Share with them the story of how you were lost in sin, separated from God, but by faith in Jesus, he has set you free. And that right now, even while you live in the tension of this world, you also experience the power of the kingdom of God in your life. Tell them what does it mean to follow me. Tell them what does it mean to know that I am has saved you, that I am here, that I am with you always in all that you go through till the very end of this age. As you follow me, as you learn to be my disciples, make other disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They do not have to live a life bound to sin and death, but God, is your creator, has made you, he has designed you to be known and loved by him since the beginning of creation. 
I pray that this Easter you might be filled with hope. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Oh, that was so weak. Did you miss it? Should I rewind for the last 30 or 40 minutes? The Son of the living God has become incarnate in this earth. He gave His life on the cross so that the debt you owed God was paid for. He didn't stay dead, but He has victory over the grave. So one day you're going to face death, but you don't have to stay dead. You will have victory in the resurrection. You will have life eternal. His kingdom is here now. Through the forgiveness of Jesus, you're brought back into resurrection relationship with Him. You experience God now, and you await that future resurrection he has victory over sin he has victory over death and that victory is available to you he is risen amen amen father god we thank you this morning that you are a god who so desperately loves us that you sent your son into this world for us that just as you promised through all of those prophets for so long, Messiah has come. Our God has come for us. His kingdom is here. And right now today, through a profession of faith, we can experience your kingdom. If we would be willing to look to you and to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. I believe it. I trust in it. I don't want to live a life that is, that is filled with sin and darkness and separation from you. I need you to save me. Yahweh saves Jesus. You're my Messiah. I trust you. I want your kingdom in my life now. And I want the promise that just as you came out of that grave, there awaits a day when death and sin and pain will be no more where your kingdom will come in all of the fullness of its glory. Thank you, God, that you love us, that you sent Jesus to die for us, and so much more that you raised to life, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we no longer live according to the spirit of the law of sin and death, but according to the law of the spirit that gives life. Jesus, I pray that you would bless us this morning hope. Help us not only to see what is right in front of us, the situations of darkness and discouragement and fear and doubt and anxiety, but help us to hear your voice, to know what you have prophesied. You will rise. You have risen and risen indeed, and your kingdom is here and is coming. In Jesus' name I pray. Uh, we would like to remind you this morning we are going to have the opportunity to worship through the giving of tithes and offerings. Uh, there are offering plates available in the, the back of the sanctuary and on the way out. Um, you can also give online at oakridgewc.com give. Use your bank's online bill pay or snail mail checks to the church. Let's pray over our offering this morning. Jesus, we thank you for how you provide for us. Father, we thank you for the goodness and the provision that you offer us. And this morning, it is our joy to be able to offer back to you a portion. Lord, we ask that you would bless that which is given, that you would use it for furthering your kingdom. God, we pray that you would bless those who give, that you would continue to allow your abundant provision to be known in their lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen. We would love to invite you back next week. We'll be starting our series on fact check, kind of looking at some of the perceptions that we sometimes have about faith and Jesus and Christianity. It'll be a great series for you, and I believe a great series for you to invite somebody to join you, whether you're coming here in person or joining online. Go with God. Have a great week. Happy Resurrection Day. God bless.